friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm really fortunate, I'm really happy to have the whole Catholic Association team on with me, my good friends, Ashley McGuire and Maureen Ferguson. Hello, ladies. Hi, Gracie. It's so nice. Um, we're, not only, we're not only talking to each other, we're seeing each other on video, which is great, because these days, uh, with, with the very little traveling all of us are doing, we've been missing that human contact, so it's, a, it's not much human contact over the video screen, but it's some. It's better than just the audio. That's certainly true. We just decided um, today for, for the first segment of this show to go back to basics because we have, this is a big week for us, This where we have a new administration. And not only that, we, we've been living a time of, of tumult, of where our polity is so complicated. Uh, there's so much division. I think all of us are feeling it very strongly. And we thought that it would be a good moment to, to go back to basics, and, and as women, as we are three women in the Catholic Association, we thought it would be interesting to talk about what is, uh, how should we be uh, thinking of ourselves as women and, and, and the role of women, our purpose as women, sort of delving down deeper into into what it all means to us as 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 women as catholics as as people who have to meet the moments um, not only of public life but also of personal life in a particular way in a feminine way yeah gracie this is really on my mind right now i'm i'm due to have a baby any day and it's such a reminder um that you know when things are so divided and so turbulent that women have this really special gift or capacity to be sort of unified with another human in a way that's intimate that that is so unique to us um, to bring new life into the world to have that special role in the family and you know it's just it's something that I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for at a time when things are are so difficult and so divided to to be able to um, experience that and and so I think you know it's that's certainly one thing that Catholic women can be thinking about is um, our capacity for motherhood and that maybe this is a time for those of us who are moms or who are about to be moms to <clears throat> really sort of step back and think about how can we live that out and, and what does it mean to be a mom in a world that you know devalues motherhood and that role and sort of reclaiming that special capacity. And uh, the, the motherhood point is important, but to think about ourselves as 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 very different from men because we have that capacity of of um, receiving another human being into our lives we have that tremendous physical hospitality that is built into us whether or not we ever end up having children because god you know our lives may call us in different directions the fact that we have that capacity built into us makes us very distinct from men and we're facing we're living in a modern world right now that that sees men and women very much as interchangeable units and as much as we want to reject that because it doesn't make sense either scientifically or spiritually um it's very easy to think of ourselves that way uh, because because we're living in this world that keeps presenting keeps reflecting back to us this idea that men and women are so equal and 
and that that equality is is symmetric that we 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 walk on the, the same paths and do the same things and this is simply not true and retaking uh, no, you know retaking that knowledge of our of our of our equal dignity but our asymmetry um, mm-hmm. I think can be very helpful at this time I do I think it's a I, I totally agree Gracie it's I think it's with so much poison and bitterness in our public conversation right now, it really is a good time for a reset, a good time to contemplate these things. And um, so many wonderful questions to ponder. Um, You talk about our complementarity as men and women, really a time to celebrate our complementarity and our unique gifts as men and women. And, And as women in particular, our capacity for cultivating beauty and as I think about my daughters and how I've been communicating with them about sort of all of the ugliness in the public square right now I I think it's really important because our daughters are growing up so steeped in feminist culture and I just think it's such an important time for us to reflect, contemplate on what is authentic feminism. And and there's no better church document to look at um, to contemplate authentic feminism than uh, St. John Paul II's Molieris Dignitatum on the dignity and vocation of women. And uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but John Paul II just does an amazing job. This is such an incredibly inspired um, document of his where he coined the the phrase, the feminine genius. Um, And he talks so much about the role of motherhood and um, I look forward to chatting more um, about John Paul, St. John Paul II's incredible insights in, in this document. When he when he talked about in this in this document the feminine genius, he placed the origin of this genius in her capacity to be a mother, um, and he wrote, "This is so pretty." This capacity implies from the beginning a special openness to the new person in a process that literally absorbs the energies of her body and soul. Um, I know that uh, Ashley at 38 weeks right now is feeling that very strongly, how it's absorbing the energies of her body and soul. And But this kind of um, idea of womanhood as, as the hospitable one, the one that receives and create and helps to create and, and then delivers back to the world this, this, other, this other person that's the object of her love um, this really stands very very much in in the face of today's version of feminism which is what you might call autonomy feminism um, the idea that that a woman is uh, most herself when she is on fettered and unbound and there is nothing more fettering and binding than than the sweet duties of motherhood and also of the home of of being a wife and taking care of of the people in that in that feminine way that we take care of people Mm-hmm. Now, by 38 weeks, Ashley, I'm sure you're feeling pretty uncomfortable, so it's hard to um, reflect on the sublime <laughs> nature um, of, of our physical capacity for motherhood. But when you think about that, that our job is to cultivate new life, to literally be co-creators with God, and just the sublime role that we play as trustees of humanity. It's really incredible, even if you might not be feeling so fantastic at this moment, Ashley. 
No, it's so true. And I I had the chance this week to go back and read not just Mulieris Dignitatum, but also St. Pope John Paul II's letter to women <clears throat> from the 1990s. And it was such a good reminder, A, of just all the richness that the church has to offer or to contribute to our, you know, sort of fraught conversations about what it means to be a man and a woman. Um, you know, he, he talks about the spiritual impoverishment of humanity. And he also, I think, is very insightful in the way he talks about how our modern times are so designed or oriented around efficiency, productivity, sort of these economic markers. But he talks about how one thing that's especially unique that women bring um, is kind of a more honest and authentic humanity and he even talks about the role of women in in bringing about what he calls the civilization of love and I just love that because it's you know if there's if there's anything that's eminently clear right now it's that that is something that's more needed is kind of authentic human relationships a more transcendent understanding of what it even means to be human what it means to be a friend what it means to be a brother or a sister and that this is, you know, something that women's unique capacity to sort of bring about that civilizing, um, authentic, more human understanding of all of these things. Um, and it's just so clear that that is, you know, it was clear to him at the time that this is what we need more of in the world. And it's, it seems to have only grown um, more so. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio, and we are the Catholic Association. Ashley, there are so many gems in that letter from St. John Paul II, and, and I would just love to quote from it uh, on just the point that you were talking about. Um, John Paul II says, quote, perhaps more than men, women acknowledge the person because they see person with their hearts. They see them independently of various ideological or political systems. They see others in their greatness and limitations. They try to go out to them and help them. In this way, the basic plan of the creator takes flesh in the history of humanity and there is constantly revealed, he goes on to say, in the variety of vocations, that beauty, not merely physical, but above all spiritual, which God bestowed from the very beginning on all and in a particular way on women. I just love that quote. You know, when you hear the way that that Pope John Paul II speaks about women, the the beauty of his language, um, the love, the tenderness with which he praises the dignity of woman and and her particular gifts, um, it makes you really sad that young people, young women these days, are are told that their their true flourishing, their true happiness lies in pretty much denying that those beautiful parts of themselves as relational beings and entering the world on the basis of of, of their work productivity of their of, of their of what they can provide in the work place um, as though they were just a pair of hands and leaving all that beautiful femininity checked at the door and then becoming sort of like the men that they work with um, who who don't have those gifts of relationality just by the the in general I must say, just by by their the the qualities of their sex. 
No, I think you're so right. And it women really are held to male standards. And that is the great failure of, as you were saying earlier, our modern conception of sexual equality, that sexual equality looks like sameness. Mm-hmm. Um, when in fact, true sexual And it looks masculine. And it looks masculine. Right. What ends up happening is that women are forced into a male mold. And then the great cost to the world is that the world loses the uniqueness of women um, when in fact, you know, we were designed as we know from the very beginning of creation as male and female and that it is our differences that complement each other. So a true understanding of what makes us different that is the actual starting point for authentic sexual equality, understanding the certain vulnerabilities that women have, that both the thing that gives us this extraordinary capacity to bring life into the world is also something that makes us extraordinarily vulnerable, Um, something that I'm about to experience again (laughs) for the fourth time and even already experiencing, you know, at 38 weeks pregnant. What's really interesting about our society as we're living it right now, this modern moment, is that at the same time that women are being held to a male standard and are being asked to check their their feminine loveliness at the door before they enter the public square, at the same time, we see a rejection of the masculine qualities. We hear a lot about toxic masculinity. We, we hear a rejection of the masculine virtues. So it's almost like we are, on the one hand, society is pushing women in the male direction towards a male um, the frame, and at, the, and at the same time denying a lot of the wonderful qualities that men carry in their, in their bodies and in their selves and in their minds because of the, the, the quality of their sex. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a big believer in single sex education uh, during the adolescent years. And at our dinner table, um, we have our teenage boys um, have gone through, you know, all boys Catholic school and the girls at all girl Catholic schools. And it's just been fascinating as a mother. That that was not my experience. I went through um, co-ed public school. But it's been fascinating as a mother to observe how um, the feminine genius is cultivated at these all-girl schools that, you know, every girl at an all-girl school is a leader, for example, or every leadership position is held by a girl. And to watch how these girls care for each other and foster the friendships, and it's really beautiful. And in contrast, at the boys' school, I mean, frequently we're doubled over in laughter hearing about the antics at the boys' school. (laughs) You know, there's 600 boys on this campus, you know, from third grade through 12th grade and it's hysterical because their maleness is really celebrated the motto of the school is from saint irenaeus that the glory of god is man fully alive and and it's this wonderful sort of balanced view of manhood um where they're gentlemen uh you you know raised to be gentlemen but it's it's hilarious and wonderful to watch the differences as they're growing from boys and girls into men and women and and what a pity to kind of dumb that down and just try to you know sort of buy into this false notion of sameness saint john paul ii talked about uh, about man being fully himself when he can make a sincere gift of self 
and she or she can make a gift a sincere gift of self and that holds for for women and we've talked about their amazing capacity as mothers but also for men because as it is in his a man's sincere gift of self that he becomes fully alive caring for dependents protecting the vulnerable able to sacrifice himself entirely for the sake of his wife his children his family his country the the fel- their fellow man in general that that is the way a man um, gives of himself sincerely and and it's a it's a complementary gift um, to the woman's um, gift of self and we hear so often about the decline of chivalry but what chivalry really is is a male recognition of the reverence due to a woman, um, that she's different, that she should be treated differently, that she shouldn't be treated the same way that a man is treated. Um, and again, that that requires um, starting with thinking of women as as different from men and, and do a special reverence. And and it's it's that sort of uh, tug and pull that that shows how women and men bring out the best in each other. That when properly understood as as different and unique and as complementary, that the women bring out sort of the nobler virtues in men, um, as you say, as they're as they bring out the more protective element in men and that you know men and women together that men bring out the more selfless characteristics in women the, the, again the the civilizing um the civilization of love uh that you know women bring to the, the world and to and to men you know and if men are if there's a man out there and he's behaving badly it's not because He's he's he he shouldn't become more of a. It's not because his masculinity is toxic. It's because he has to be more of a man. He has to be the man that protects, the man that embraces the vulnerable and gives of himself and can sacrifice himself. That's what's missing. He has to be more a man, more fully himself, more fully the 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 masculine person that God intended him to be when He made him a male. Same for a bad woman. If a woman is being bad, it's not because she ought to be more like a man. It's because she ought to be more fully feminine and more fully able to sacrifice herself and give of herself fully. And you know, John Paul too makes that point that um, in order to command proper respect and dignity, in in order for women to command proper respect and dignity, uh, they first, we first have to understand our own dignity and how sublime our calling is, uh, you know, before our culture will ever understand that. And and these characterizations of, of of male and female, they're not stereotypes. And from the Catholic perspective, I think we have a very rich, extremely rich um, history and tradition of men and women uh, behaving in ways that weren't stereotypical and at the same time were fully living the virtues. And of course, I'm thinking of someone like St. Joan of Arc, uh, a, a perfectly feminine woman who led a French army at the age of 17, uh, afraid of nothing. She was born for that spectacular you know moment and maybe someone on the other side Saint Damien of Molokai who was known for that tender affectionate and intimate care of the lepers in the colony that he elected to live with he cared for them like a tender mother
Mm-hmm. And of course, our conversation has been focused on our feminine roles as wife, as mother. Um, but of course, in our Catholic tradition, we see the beautiful way um, in which spiritual motherhood can be lived out with our beautiful nuns and religious who uniquely carry out such, you know, their amazing vocations. And the feminist, the feminine genius is seen, you know, in a new way when you consider the little sisters of the poor who dedicate their entire lives to taking care of the elderly. Uh, the selfless love that they exemplify. And when I think of the Sisters of Life and the beautiful way that they uh, accompany women in difficult pregnancies and help care for them, I mean, I can't imagine a more beautiful embodiment of the feminine genius and spiritual motherhood than the Sisters of Life. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Pope John Paul II, but Pope Francis has also really um, called the world or and the church um, to be reminded of the important role of women. And I think he's particularly tuned into so much of the exploitation, the commercialization, the violence that characterizes our world. And I think he, you know, there's so much continuity between what he's, what Pope John Paul II says, um, but he, he really understands that uh, women are the antidote to that commercialization, um, the exploitation of the female body, human trafficking, um, and that, again, you know, as we're moving well into this third millennium, that the the women are needed in the world more than ever to to be a, a counterbalance to an increasing pull towards, you know, the bottom line and 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 the way that women see the person as person first. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I think this is just a good time to stop and reflect um, on on the church's wisdom and insight in, into that and really foresight, seeing this long before um, the, the culture did. And in many respects, the culture still doesn't understand or appreciate um, just how how needed that feminine genius is, starting with just basic the basic acknowledgement of, of the humanity of the person, be it, you know, the vulnerable unborn child or the, the frail, poor, elderly, sick person, both of whom, you know, as Pope Francis you know, constantly admonishes us are are seen as as throwaway because they don't fit the mold of the you know productive productivity um, that sort of drives our current global thinking. I think you're so right about Pope Francis's um, very keen insights on this question. And as he sort of examines human ecology and has reflected upon our nature as male and female, I, I think part of uh, his keen insight there is that he comes from a Latin culture, which seems to so um, wonderfully celebrate the differences between men and women. And I know, Gracie, I've heard you talk about how in Hispanic cultures, this doesn't seem to be much of a problem, this understanding of men and women. I'd love to hear, Gracie, you expound upon that a little bit. Well, you know, from the Latin perspective, the Latino perspective, um, it's it's a delight to be feminine and a delight to be masculine, and and to blur the lines between them is a is a loss for the entire culture, um, because 
it is it is it is so it is so wonderful the way men and women um, express different parts of God's um, God's create creative prowess. I mean, he makes God creates and creates out of love, and he creates us differently, and we are able um, to live that fully. Um, and it, it's a little it's a little shocking sometimes when when we see when we come to United States, for instance, when I came to United States uh, and and viewed the United States for the first time, and I saw that much more um, homogeneous um, sort of cookie cutter. This is a person, and you know you have to fit into that mold. And there's not two different molds. Um, so yeah, I think there is a lot to be said for celebrating those two very separate ways that God made human beings. God, you know, God chose to make human beings in two flavors. <laughs> so there must be some wonderful reason behind that that we won't understand until um, we are, you know, in, in, in that other life that awaits us, hopefully. Right. Um, but that is that is what God chose. I mean, and even going further, God characterized himself very much as a father, as, a, as in the masculine. So God, in his communication to the people of Israel and his communication to us in Revelation, he characterizes himself very much in the masculine. And he gives himself, um, in, in the way he shows himself to us, certain masculine characteristics. And how wonderful that is that it, it is that we can um, take that to heart and then love ourselves the way God created us. And, 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 you know, embrace all those parts of ourselves. If we are young women, we can embrace the fact that we can one day be mothers and, and we don't have to put our motherhood, our motherhood on, on a shelf until, you know, we achieve huge career goals um, and then maybe regret it later. And if, if we're men, we can, we can embrace the fact that God made us strong and, and you know, be, be, you know, bold. He made us bold and strong, and so that we can go and and do amazing physical acts that sometimes um, mean protecting our families and protecting our neighbor when when he or she needs it. And, and God, in His creative genius, also gives us Mary, our Blessed Mother, um, the new Eve to um, model ourselves on. Yes, we're so blessed that we have um, the example of Mary as someone to model ourselves after and again just the extraordinary rich tradition of the church going all the way back to the early woman doctors of the church and the, the many many saints the very rich tradition of the church um, in terms of the women doctors of the church like St. Therese of the Child Jesus or St. Catherine of Siena and uh, I know the late great Cato Byrne used to talk about how it was Catholic nuns who were who broke the who were first to break the glass ceiling. They were the first women CEOs of, of the, you know, medieval convents and uh, hospitals and universities. Um, so so it, it's an excellent point to contemplate the rich tradition and history of women in the church going back to, of course, uh, Jesus's revolutionary way in which he treated women. We are very fortunate to have all the, not only the biblical our biblical understanding of ourselves as men and women, but also the rich tradition of our church. I hope that our listeners have, like us, enjoyed this reflection on um, what it is to be fully alive, fully human, fully fully the person that, that God um, made us to be, that He expects from us. Fully male or fully female, embodying and embracing all those virtues that belong to each one of us.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and in this segment, we continue our look at religious freedom worldwide, but we're turning our attention to Asia, specifically to India, to talk to our good friends, Rebecca and Timothy Shaw, who are in Bangalore, where they live and work. They are currently affiliated with the Archbridge Institute, which is a think tank based in D.C., Also, Timothy Shaw is a distinguished research scholar in politics at the University of Dallas. Welcome to the show, Rebecca and Timothy. Good Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Gracie. Great to talk to you. Maybe each of you could just give us a little snapshot of what what you do and what you do in India. Okay, Gracie, I've been uh, nominated to go first, and uh, thank you very much for having us on the show. What I... What I will talk about today is what I have been engaged for some years in working on, and that is to study very carefully the impact of religion, that is religious beliefs, religious practices, religious networks on poverty alleviation. Many people believe that religion is a burden, it's a crutch, it's a hindrance to uh, to progress, to economic uplift. And in fact, what I've been doing for years, and particularly in the last few years, through concerted efforts to study on-the-ground experiences of different practices, different religious practices in India and Sri Lanka, is to, is to try and ascertain very carefully the extent to which religion helps the poor lift themselves out of persistent poverty. And I'll give you two key findings that we had. The first is that people, particularly the poor, who hold deep, who have deeply held religious beliefs and practices, that is practices and religious beliefs, whether they are Hindu beliefs, Christian beliefs, uh, Islamic beliefs, but they are deeply held, they are constitutive of who they are. These people uh, exhibit pro-developmental outcomes. What do I mean by that? They exhibit outcomes that are important for their both their family and their economic life. They are, for, let's take Catholics. We're on a Catholic show. We are Catholic. A poor Catholics, Dalit Catholics, that have the freedom to attend religious services weekly or more, who have the freedom to pray alone, who have the freedom to practice, to walk on the road and pray at the shrine of Our Lady, like many did yesterday on her feast day, are more likely to be able to to know the interest rate. This is an informal economy. Interest rates are up and down. So we're more likely to know the interest rate. Men, Catholic men, that is, for whom, who have deeply held religious beliefs, are less likely to beat their wives, (laughs) less likely to see other women. So religion has on the ground, real life impact. The second finding is, we have, and I'll very, very brief, is people who have the freedom, who are given the freedom to to switch religious traditions, regardless of direction, switch out of one tradition into another, who just have that freedom, God-given freedom to access the truth. They also exhibit these wonderfully important 
pro-developmental, pro-social outcomes. So that is something that I've been studying and trying to get the message across that religion is important for the poor. Well, that's really fascinating, Rebecca, and I, I want to follow up on that. But Tim, tell us about uh, what you're doing in India. Sure. Becky is the economist, as you could you could yes. tell from her. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the political scientist. And um, my work really focuses on the um, uh, political benefits of religious freedom. And our approach in general here in India and the region is not so much to curse the darkness, to talk about the problems, but try to build on the positive in order, just as you put it beautifully in, in your in your opener, so that individuals and societies can fulfill their potential. And the, the, the work that I'm concentrating, along with uh, Rebecca, in a nutshell, is about trying to build on India's own uh, cultural and spiritual traditions that respect pluralism and tolerance uh, to help India really fulfill its economic and political potential in the face of very grave challenges, you know, among others from a a very aggressive China. You know, it's interesting, but I I think when most people think of India, they do appreciate that India is a very pluralistic society, that there are, uh, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in the kinds, uh, in the ways that people worship. But at the same time, they probably tend to think, well, that that causes a lot of friction. But what you're saying is that that same, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. that that same pluralism and that that freedom to express our relationship to God in so many different ways and in so many different traditions is actually a great plus for India. Yes, absolutely. And you see that across India's history, India has been an incredible sort of spiritual melting pot. I guess, you know, to borrow a a metaphor we usually associate with America. St. Thomas, the apostle, uh, we believe, arrived in India in 52 AD, spent 20 years uh, sharing the gospel in uh, probably South India. And India was enough of a place marked by spiritual hospitality, as it were, that the church could flourish and grow uh, uh, over the last uh, 2,000 years. And many other communities have experienced something similar. There's been a functioning Jewish community in India for more than 2,000 years on India's uh, west coast. This is really a a constant feature, and it continues to be a strength uh, of Indian society uh, today in in most parts of India. And Rebecca, how fascinating, too, what you were saying about men beating their wives less (laughs) when when they're well-connected. That that really caught my attention. And also about the interest rates, which is not something that I would have thought uh, as a measure of achieving prosperity, but it makes sense in a totally makes sense in uh, in, in the, the economy, which is more uh, complicated than here, for instance, in the United States. Why do these things happen, do you think, that religious affiliation and practice help people? Is it the commu- the sense, the fact that people are connected to a community, or is it is it the fact that it's instilling virtues? Thank you. Uh, thank you for asking me this question, because it gives me a chance to just expound ever so uh, quickly on, on the work. Actually, it's both those things. And I'll talk briefly about the community aspect. Yes, um, when people are, and this is this is seen in in a lot of work already on the role of religion in in other types of uplift. For example, there's been significant work, as you probably know, and you probably already have interviewed people like Tyler Vanderweel on, on the role of religion and health 
Uh, he does work on human flourishing, of course. So people who are connected to a religious community are part of that community and they hear about different ways in which they can improve their family. See, now the poor don't have a buffer. They don't have anybody to advocate for them. So when a person, for example, is part of a religious community who is a, who is a Dalit, who is a poor person, and they hear that there is a job going for their son who's just graduated, but they don't they don't know how to get their son into a good job in the city. But there's someone in the church who knows, say, mm-hmm. a, a person in, a, in, a, in an organization. They can advocate for that person. So being connected to an active community is very important. And this also brings uh, to light some of the other work that Tim and I are doing is the work on religious institutions. The role of religious institutions and the freedom for religious institutions to operate is critical for the uplift of the poor and in many ways connected to what I've just said. The second one is constitutive and intrinsic, an intrinsic importance to the poor. That is religion's intrinsic importance. It gives them a different belief about who they are. It uh, enhances their dignity. For example, many of the people who uh, come, not just in the Christian faith, but other parts, kind of seek the truth, meet the transcendent, have a relationship with that trans with the transcendent, whoever the transcendent is. In the case of a Hindus, it is certain gods, but for us as Catholics, it's the Lord Jesus and praying uh, to the various saints. It's for them to to reach out to be beyond their circumstances and know there's a loving providence who's with them every step of the way, who will help them navigate these very bumpy, particularly this year, very bumpy economic, social, familial uh, shocks, troubles that they face. What I try to do is try and quantify that and clarify the mechanism by which religion influences their uplift. It's a very important thing to clear up. From your perspective, the way you do it in a very uh, factual way with data, because here in the in the rich West, people have lost that understanding of how the poor really need that the, the connection to the transcendent, the instilling of virtues, community that where they help each other. I myself grew up in the developing world in Mexico, and it, it's a tremendous asset. Religion is a tremendous asset to people who are materially challenged. So it's wonderful that you're quantifying this, making it understandable to people who are thinking in maybe in dollars and cents and in other kinds of quantifiable ways where you can put a price to human flourishing or put a level on human flourishing. So I think that makes a, t- a lot of sense. Now, it was just over a year ago in Easter of 2019 that nine suicide bombers targeted two Catholic churches, an evangelical church and three hotels, killing an estimated 259 people and injuring more than 500. How does... How do the Catholics in the country pick up and, and, and go forward? after an experience like that? Well, they, they have done remarkably well um, in uh, Sri Lanka. The, the, um, the Catholic community, and, and including the Cardinal Archbishop um, Malcolm Ranjit, um, as well as the Protestant um, community, really worked extraordinarily heroically after those terrible bombings. It, as it happens, Rebecca and I were in Colombo, staying in one of the hotels that had actually been targeted really? by these 
pipe bombers just a few weeks before. We actually were literally, we spent time in the breakfast room that had been a target um, of, um, of one of these suicide bombers. So what happened there is very vivid and real. And we know people who were on the ground working heroically to help the, the victims. The, the, the church is doing one thing in Sri Lanka that's really crucial, and it's doing the same in, in India, and that is advocating for the uh, comprehensive importance and value of religious freedom as as a crucial element of our of our Catholic social doctrine. We believe in religious freedom as Catholics, not just as a sort of separate individual right, but we, we believe it's 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 a crucial part of what we call integral human development. That a society can't really flourish uh, integrally uh, apart from religious freedom. And unfortunately, Sri Lanka has seen a real decline in religious freedom, and. Sadly, what happened last year with these bombings were a result of the slow and steady radicalization on the part of, of, of some Muslims in Sri Lanka, which was partly a product of and has been a product of growing religious repression in Sri Lanka of religious minorities. As, as you know, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist majority country. And there are a number of Buddhist groups that really are trying to drive religious minorities to the margins. Uh, and sadly, those bombings, though this, of course, does not justify the ideology that inspired the bombers, sadly, some of the radicalization that contributed to those bombings and continues to contribute to the violence and conflict in Sri Lanka as a result of religious minorities not being respected, and therefore the society not really fulfilling uh, its potential. And, and do you see improvement in that since since these bombings and, and the horrific results of that kind of marginalizing of religious minorities? Uh, sadly, no. The, 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 there have been heroic efforts by the church, including by Protestant um, uh, leaders that, that we work with in Sri Lanka, efforts to uh, really make sure that everyone has a place at the table in Sri Lanka. But unfortunately, partly as a result of those bombings, uh, Sri Lankan society has become much more deeply polarized, uh, and the bombings helped set in motion a series of political events that led to the, the triumph uh, in uh, parliamentary and presidential elections over the last year of a much more nationalist party that is not friendly to religious freedom. That's sad news. Um, we have to it pray. Is. We have to pray for Sri Lanka. We have to pray for Sri Lanka because, unfortunately, what has happened makes makes those very bombings that you. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned them. It makes that kind of violence, unfortunately, more more of a, of a likely prospect in the coming months and years. Now, I understand that the country India may have some disadvantages when it comes to internet freedoms and even freedom of the press. So how has this impacted, Rebecca, economic prosperity for the younger generation of India? The young people in India have, many of them are involved in the IT field, as you know, some of, I'm, I'm here in, uh, in, in, the, in the urban areas. I'm in, in Karnataka, which is, uh, and in Bangalore City, which is called the Silicon Valley of the South. And, and I think what's happening in India, and we have the advantage of a youth population. So in some ways, Indian youth have become uh, 
uh, how, how do I say it, have used the so social media to, to speak out against these various uh, restrictions. We, in the cities, there has been, uh, they, they still have access to the, many of the apps and many of the uh, programs that they use. Recently, India uh, eliminated a few uh, applications on Android and OIS, iOS phones, because with China, uh, with its issue with China, and those we, our own family was quite glad to have gotten rid of a couple of apps because our boys uh, didn't play those crazy games. Yes, but uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so we were delighted in that respect. But in terms of the impact on young people, young people who are working the tech field and WhatsApp and other apps, we and we don't. I mean, we there have been yes restrictions in Kashmir, and that was for political reasons, but. In urban areas, there. Ha- I mean, as far as I I know, there haven't that many restrictions on the youth, and we have still have access to WhatsApp and different other apps. In terms of the press freedom, yes, there have been restrictions. Some some restrictions on the press, and I don't. I mean, this is a, a subject, a big subject for another show. And as I said earlier, the young people, many of whom have been educated uh, in in, uh, in Western-style education here in India or the diaspora returning, are, are protesting in India freedom to allow these protests. Um, they still have the young people access Facebook, and there's a lot of protests on Facebook, a lot of petitions on Facebook. We see that in the vernacular as well as in English. So that protest and the freedom to protest for the young is still alive and well. Then India may be restricting other freedoms, but this uh, for for young people and uh, their freedom to protest and their freedom to access the internet in certainly in urban areas is still still quite. Uh, a, strong. Apparently that's something going on all over the world, the struggle between a secular approach uh, to the world's ills and something that includes a transcendent. So I'm glad, I'm glad Rebecca and Tim that you're in India and doing such amazing work. How can we support you from the United States? So what kind, what, what, how can, what prayer intentions can we, can we hold for you and how can we learn more about your work? Thank you so much. Please do pray uh, for India in a very challenging moment. Uh, The coronavirus has hit India very hard. Hundreds of millions of poor people are suffering terribly. Migrant workers are suffering. So please pray for India. Pray for the witness of the Catholic Church, uh, which is very strong. Um, I'll just mention there was recently an award in India given for the, the most successful, effective NGO in addressing the coronavirus crisis. And the award was given to Caritas, wow. uh, the development wing of the Indian Catholic Bishops Conference, Caritas India, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, an indicator of the witness that the church is having. Um, my my wife's parents, Rebecca's parents, run a Christian NGO that serves poor people. Uh, so the church is doing tremendous work. Pray for the, the church and pray for our work as we try to, in response to the polarization we talked about, we're trying to depolarize uh, debate in, in India so that different people can come together and relearn what has been India's great strength of uh, pluralism and uh, respect for difference. We both are associated with some 
something called the Archbridge Institute in Washington, um, which includes some wonderful Catholic leaders, including Andreas Widmer, who's on the board. And it's, a, it's a, an organization that promotes the fulfillment of, of the human potential through economic reform, political reform, and uh, social reform. So you can learn more about us and our work at the Archbridge Institute. We will certainly be praying, and thank you very much for all you do. I We wish you much success, and thank you for joining me on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you very much, Gracie. God bless you. Thank you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday. Last week, we examined the type of growth in faith that's meant to happen in the life of every Christian. We did so, we can say, from the subjective perspective, from the experience of St. Andrew and St. John, passing from fascination and curiosity about Jesus to the trust that characterizes following him as disciple, to the enthusiastic sharing of the faith that marks the apostolate. This Sunday, we have the chance to examine the type of growth that is meant to characterize our Christian life from Jesus' own perspective, with the help of Jesus' words and actions at the beginning of his public ministry. In Jesus' inaugural 18-word homily, 16 words in St. Mark's original Greek, and in his conversations with the first followers afterward, we see four different elements that are key for our spiritual growth. This is what Jesus had waited his entire hidden life in Nazareth to announce to do, it's also what he, as God, had been waiting since the fall to establish. The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus first announces two essential facts. The first is, the time is fulfilled. He proclaims an urgency. He says that the time of waiting is over. The time to act is now. The second fact is the kingdom of God is at hand. He declares that God's kingdom is here. God's presence is erupting. And the time to enter his kingdom, to share in his reign, is now. After the two facts, Jesus turns to four ways we're supposed to respond to this reality. These are the four conditions for entering and living in his kingdom. These are the four ways that we won't waste the time God has given us, but make the most of it. The first is repent. The second, believe. The third, follow. And the fourth, fish. Let's examine each of these realities and ask ourselves whether we've been heeding Jesus' message. First is repent. In Greek, this word is metanoete, which etymologically means a total revolution of our mind at the way we look at things. It's a call to conversion, to no longer thinking as everyone else thinks, to no longer doing as everyone else does, but to put on the mind of God to align our heart and our actions to God means to compare ourselves not to everyone else, but to God, to recognize we're not yet living enough as the image and likeness of God. For some people, this will require a 180-degree turn. For others, it might mean a 50-degree or a 10-degree turn. But all of us need this conversion, and will always need it. The Christian life is one of continual conversion, which we literally learn how to turn with, or convert, turn with Jesus in all parts of our life. As Jesus turns in prayer to the Father, we turn with him. As he turns with charity to our neighbor, we turn with him. As he turns with mercy to a family member who has sinned against him and against us, we too turn with mercy. This call to continual metanoia means that we're incessantly seeking to change for the better, to become more and more like the Lord who calls us to that penance and renewal. Second word is believe. To believe means not just to accept something as true. To believe means totally to submit ourselves to a reality on the base of a trust in the one testifying to that reality. To believe means to entrust ourselves completely to Jesus, and on that foundation ground our lives, 
on what he says. Our Christian life is meant to be marked by this type of faith. Because of our trust in Jesus, we believe in what he tells us about the path to happiness and the Beatitudes. We seek to align our whole life to what he says. Because of our trust in Jesus, we believe in what he reveals to us about God the Father. We ground our existence on that Father's love and call. Because of our trust in Jesus, we believe in what he says about his presence in the Eucharist, about his sending out the apostles and their successors for the forgiveness of sins and confession, about what he says about caring for others as if we were caring for him, but what he says about praying for our persecutors and even loving our enemies. To believe in Jesus, to believe in the gospel he enunciates and enfleshes, means to seek to grow in both our intellectual knowledge of the gospel and our putting it into practice. This Sunday is an important one. It's the second observance of the Sunday of the Word of God, created last year by Pope Francis, precisely to help us grow in intimate familiarity with the sacred scriptures, to appreciate their inexhaustible riches, and to experience anew how the risen Lord opens up for us the treasure of his word and enables us to proclaim its unfathomable riches before the world. Faith comes, as St. Paul reminds us, through hearing, and we grow in faith through the gift of the word of God, which this Sunday we have a chance to appreciate all the more. The third word of Jesus is, follow me or come after me. Jesus says those words to Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John of the Gospel, and they immediately left their nets, their boats, their fish, their employees, and their families to follow Jesus. They were open to the type of revolution in the way they looked at their life that's contained in Jesus' word, repent, and they believed in Jesus enough already to leave everything behind on a dime to base their entire life on his word calling them to follow. Likewise for us, it's not enough to repent and believe because the Lord Jesus always calls us to follow him in faith, turning our back on other things. The Christian life features this type of discipleship, which we focus on following the Lord Jesus rather than leading him and calling the shots. It means following Jesus into dark valleys and up steep mountains, following him ultimately up close on the way of the cross all the way to heaven. Today, Jesus beckons us with a gloriously scarred right hand to follow in his footsteps. The fourth and final word is fish. Jesus says in the gospel that if we follow him, I will make you fishers of men. He'll form us to be apostles, to spread the faith, to draw others to him with the same message, that the time is now, that the door to the kingdom is open, and that they'll enter it through repentance, faith, discipleship, and apostolate. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as we know, and so many others have gone through this pattern of Christian life and are now triumphantly with the Lord. It's our turn to take up our role in the fulfillment of time. Right now, the Lord has called us to conversion and faith and commissioned us to be his followers and fishermen in the midst of a broken country that needs the light of the gospel now as much as ever. We're called to live and announce the reality that Christ the King and his kingdom are at hand, that he's calling us to a new life and showing us the way. This is a way of truth rather than fake news, a way of forgiveness rather than grudges, a way of faith rather than cynicism, a way of compassion rather than hardness of heart, a way of life rather than abortion, euthanasia, the death penalty, and so many senseless homicides. Let us seize Christ's offer of the kingdom. Let us help others to seize it, too. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 